2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After this, the, the Moabites and the Amorites, and with them some of the Mennonites, uh, Mennonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hezron Tamar, that is, Egni. Uh, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to... Uh, and, 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 set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, our, o Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and, and whom they avoided and did not destroy." Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Examples of prayers are not universal prescriptions of how to pray. Now, um, we find many examples in Scripture of praying, but they're not always necessarily perfect prescriptions of exactly how we should pray. Uh, over the summer, um, I had the opportunity to, to ride in the back of an ambulance and while I was in the back of the ambulance, I was desperately praying that God would give me the ability to speak to the, to the EMT person that was with me in the back of that ambulance about Jesus. She said she didn't know Jesus, and I wanted to introduce her to Jesus. Now, in that moment, I was in tremendous pain. I was under great stress, and I had some medications in me that were making my mind not as clear as it normally was. And I prayed desperately, God, help me share the gospel with this woman. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That was an authentic prayer. It was a passionate prayer. It was a heartfelt prayer, but it probably wasn't one that you'd want to emulate. It probably only had five words. Help me, God. Help me, God, share the gospel. So not all examples of prayer are prescriptions of how we should pray, are good prescriptions of how we should pray. And that's true in Scripture as well. There are many examples in Scripture of people praying. Some are eloquent. In fact, we're going to reference today Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple. Read that sometimes. It is absolutely eloquent and a beautiful prayer. So, some are passionate. Some are short. Some are long. Some are detailed, some are very brief, 
Some are very simple. And I think all of them teach us something about prayer, but none are definitively prescriptive in how we should pray. Friends, your prayer life is a basic element in your Christian walk with the Lord. Praying is is part of our walk. It should be as common with you as breathing and eating. Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. Everywhere we turn in Scripture, we see people praying, we hear the, the, uh, the encouragement, the commands to pray. In fact, I would guess that if we just polled the room this morning and I ask each of you individually, as a Christian, should you pray? I don't think any of you are probably con- confused about that question. You would probably likely say, absolutely. But I also would suggest that, that if I were to also poll you and say, how do you feel about your prayer life? Some of us would go, it's not where I want it to be. The encouragement and the command to pray can be found throughout Scripture, but the question should be asked, how should we pray? Like I've already said, no example of prayer is definitively prescriptive, but but many are helpful models. Today, I want us to consider the prayer of King Jehoshaphat. Though it's not a complete definitive uh, prescription of how we should pray, I do think it is a helpful model in how we pray should pray. In the Old Testament, God's people were the nation of Israel. And after they had been set free from the slavery of Egypt, God had given them the land that he had promised them. And there's a whole host of history here, but the basic idea is God said, this is my land I'm giving you. You'll possess it. You walk in faithfulness. I'll keep you in it. I'll I'll provide for you in it, and you will stay in it. Now, uh, um, history had been kind of rough for Israel. Um, after King Solomon, the, the nation had split, and the, the larger group went with, stayed with Israel, and, and all of their kings are wicked kings. The smaller division, Judah, um, it, it included Jerusalem. Most of their kings are righteous kings, and Jehoshaphat is a, uh, a king of Judah, but now the king of Israel is still there. That nation still exists in this in this moment. Jehoshaphat is considered a good king, but this doesn't mean that he did not have his faults and his shortcomings, and he made some major mistakes. Kings are always looking for political advantage, and so one of the things that Jehoshaphat had done is he married into Ahab, the king of Israel's family. Ahab um, was um, a, a wicked king. He had married Jezebel, who was a Baal worshiper, and it caused him all kinds of trouble because of his allegiance and, and connectiveness with that, with that family. He had allowed Ahab to talk him into uh, to going into war together, and Ahab had convinced him, why don't you wear your, 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 your kingly robe? So into battle he goes with, with all of his uh, accoutrements of being a king, and of course you know what that meant, that he was a, a direct target for the enemy and should have died in that battle, but by God's grace, God specifically saved him and preserved his, his life. After this event, he would, he would partner up with another wicked king, and he would attempt to, to make, uh, make himself wealthy through a scheme of building ships and sending them out. But, but because he was acting against the, the will of God, God caused the ships to sink. So he's considered a good king, but he's not a perfect king. He's a man who struggles with obedience uh, himself. In our passage, he is a king that has run out of options. He's a king that is scared 
A nation much larger and stronger than his own is threatening to attack. And Jehoshaphat knows that unless the Lord delivers them, he will lose everything. He'll lose his rule. He'll lose his kingdom. And the people will be dispossessed from the land. And so in chapter 20, he, he calls the people together for a national assembly. So this is a, a national prayer event is what it is. He calls them together and he's standing in the, in, the, in the temple, in the court of the temple. And he, this is the prayer that he prays before the people to God, a prayer of asking God uh, to deliver them. And, and from his example and this model of prayer, I want us to see some things about an authentic, what authentic prayer looks like. I think, I think Jehoshaphat in this moment is absolutely bearing his heart before, before God and, and asking for help. And, and here's how I want us to consider. Number one, he begins with declaring who God is and what God has done. An interesting place to begin, but I think a very important place to begin. Only then does he move into this dedication and praise, dedicating the, the people to obedience and praising God for who he is. And then at the very end, he makes his plea. And it's an interesting plea even in all of that because he doesn't actually ask God to do what he really wants God to do, which is get rid of the, um, get rid of the enemy. But he asks ask God to, um, to be faithful to his promise and to, and to keep his word. But let's begin with where, where Jehoshaphat begins, and that is declaring who God is and what God has done. So in your Bibles, look with me in verses 6 and 7. We see the beginning of his prayer, and you see when he begins his prayer, he doesn't begin with, come God, deliver us from our enemies. He begins with declaring who the Lord is. He says, oh God, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. Friends, we say this so often, but it is appropriate to say again here, and that is where we begin when we bow our heads before the living God is an understanding that God is sovereign over all. That's where Jehoshaphat begins. He begins with a declaration, God, you are bigger and better and greater than any nation and any God and anything that is out there. Now, this may seem like a strange thing to begin with. Certainly God knows who he is and what he's done. Certainly God, who is sovereign over all, knows that he is sovereign over all. God doesn't need to be told about that. He already knows that. But declaring the sovereignty of God is not for the benefit of God, but for to rightly set our attention on who we are talking to. It is important to know who you're talking to so that you know how to talk to them. So Jehoshaphat's just declaring what is true about God as he begins his prayer. God, you are the God of all creation. God, you are the one who is sovereign over all things. God, you are the one who is greater and mighty than all the nations, even as he has an eye to the, to the attacking army, he's saying, God, you're the one who is greater than them. Jehoshaphat begins with these three truths in verse 6. Number one, you are God of our fathers. In other words, God, you chose Abraham and you've been faithful to your promises to Abraham through every generation. He says, you are God in heaven that he is not an idol made by the hands of men. He's not some weak thing of stone and wood. But he is God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the one who created all things. He is God of heaven and earth and sovereign over all. And then thirdly, he says, God, God you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. And that none are able to withstand you. 
In other words, God's not limited uh, to the kingdom of Judah or to the, to even to the kingdom of Judah and Israel, but God is sovereign over every people, over every tribe, over every land, over every nation. There is nowhere on the face of the earth and no people on the face of the earth that God is not God over. Friends, understanding who you are talking to determines how you speak and what you request. And Jehoshaphat begins with declaring the sovereignty of God. And then in, in the second part of verse 6 and into 7, he, he declares that God is uh, who, who God is and that he is able to provide. So look at what he says in, in the last part of 6, moving in, in into 7. And he says, um, in your hand are, are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Now, verse 7 is a recognition, a short verse of a recognition of a long history. I don't have time this morning to review all the history that has preceded this moment in Scripture, but the most important thing to know is that the land in which Judah inhabits was given to them by God. As his people, God gave them this land. In other words, that's why he says, it is, it is our inheritance from you. So he's setting up the reality that you gave us, and this attack is actually working against your word and your will. Now again, Jehoshaphat is not telling God something he doesn't know. Jehoshaphat is remembering before the Lord that God has historically provided well. That the people live in the land because of the grace of God. They didn't get there because of their physical might. They got there by the power and the grace of God. And that the people have remained in the land until this moment because of the provision of God's grace. In other words, we're still here, not because of something we've done, but because of what you have done for us. Now friends, prayer is not an exercise in meaningless words. Listen to me carefully. Prayer is not an exercise in meaningless words, but authentic prayer is driven by recognizing who God is and what he has done. Knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and trusting that he will continue in the power, in the grace, in the faithfulness he has proven over and over and over and over again. Oh God, you have been faithful to me. God, you have provided for me. And now as I stand in this moment of need, I declare it again, your faithfulness endures forever. Friends, we must begin. As we begin our prayer before the, the power of the mighty God, we must declare our hope in the power of God. In some ways, prayer by its very self is a declarative act. When you're in trouble, and when trouble comes upon you, Whatever you believe has the power to save is what you will first turn your attention to. If you believe you've got the power to, to save or to rescue or to fix whatever trouble you're in, you'll turn to the things that you can do. If you believe that somebody has the power to save, redeem, or fix whatever trouble you're in, you'll turn to them. But if you believe God alone has the power to save, then your first act is to turn to him. Prayer by its very nature is a declarative act, declaring the hope that you put your hope in God himself. Jehoshaphat's prayer begins with a declaration of God's power and historic provision. Jehoshaphat knew that he faced a danger and a threat that he could not conquer on his own, that, 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 he, that, that could take away his kingdom and could and likely would dispossess the people from the land that God had given them. And at this moment, his hope is placed 
not in the political alliances that he had made. At this moment, his hope is placed not in the money that he has in his treasury. And in this moment, his hope is placed not in his military's ability to fight. No, in this moment, uh, his hope is placed in the power of the living God. Friends, prayer should begin with declaring who God is and what he has done. He is able. Now, I don't know what your life is, which, what you're dealing with in your life right now. Maybe for you, your grass is green, your bank account is full, your kids are behaving, your marriage is great, and everything is wonderful in your house. Praise God for that if that's true of you. But it very well may be, and likely so, that many of you today are facing some things that are overwhelmingly troubling to you. Where do you begin? Set your face toward God, believing that he is able. Whatever it is that you fill in the blank that is your trouble, God is able to meet it, to restore it, to deal with it. So we begin with um, declaring who God is and what he has done. But secondly, then Jehoshaphat moves to a dedication and praise. So, so look with me what he, what he says in verses 8 and 9. In, in verse 8 and 9 he says, um, And they have lived in it. This is the land that God gave them. And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name. Now, the sanctuary he's talking about is the temple, and he is literally standing in the temple courtyard right now as he says these words. He says, so they they built for you a a temple or a a sanctuary for your name, saying, verse 9, if disaster comes upon us, the, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, in this dedication, there is a, a truth that Jehoshaphat is standing on, and that is God is always good. At the heart of Judah was the temple that was in Jerusalem. Before entering the land, God had dwelt with his people among them, had dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. It was a tent that, that held the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and it was where God's holy presence was. But, but after entering the land and establishing the land, God did not allow David, but he did allow Solomon to build a temple, and God filled that temple with his presence. And that was where God dwelt with his, with his people. It's a holy place. And that's where, in front of that temple, is where Jehoshaphat stands now. That's why he says, your name is in this house. It doesn't mean they've written his name in there. It means that the presence of God dwells within this temple. This is the sanctuary that King Jehoshaphat is referring to in these verses. Verse 9 is a declaration that no matter what happens, the people will turn their hearts and minds' attention to the Lord. So they say, listen, we declared when this temple was built that what, no matter what came our way, no matter what trouble befell us, what we would do in response to that is we'd come here, we'd put our face before God, and we'd stand before him for help. And Jehoshaphat gives some examples of when the people would stand before the Lord. He says, when sword, now that would refer to an attack from an enemy. He says, when judgment, which is the, or the, the sword of judgment, which would be God's discipline toward them, pestilence, a natural disaster, famine, a great need. 
Now, some of these are part of living in a fallen world. So in a fallen world, there will be seasons of famine. There will be pestilence, and there will be attacks and, and difficulties from foreign nations. But all of these may, and sometimes God did use them as ways of discipline. So God used famine. He used pestilence. He used invading armies as discipline upon his people. Jehoshaphat references God's discipline specifically when he says the sword of judgment. The dedication of the people, that is, um, is that no matter what the disaster is, the response is the same. Turn to God. So when famine comes, we turn our attention to God. When pestilence comes, we turn our attention to God. When a foreign invader comes, we turn our attention to God. When we are brought low because of discipline, we turn our face toward God. And the point is this. That God is always good. He's good when the brokenness of this world creates need. So when cancer comes, when job losses come, when difficulties come, tornadoes and hurricanes come, God is good in those moments to provide for us. And he's also good when our own sin brings about brokenness. So right now you are living the consequences of your sin. God's still good in those moments when we turn to him and seek his face. Whatever the cause of the need, the answer is always the same. That's the dedication. The needs change, sometimes a result of sin, sometimes a result of living in a fallen world, but the response is always the same. Turn to God. Because there is a deep abiding faith that God is able to forgive and to deliver. So, Turn to God alone because God alone is able to forgive and deliver. So Jehoshaphat declares in the end of verse 9 that when the people cry out to God, that he will both hear and save. What a beautiful promise to declare. Jehoshaphat is praying the promises of God. The promises is twofold. That he will hear you when you pray and that he will respond with salvation. Friends, when we turn our hearts to God and cry out to him, he is able to forgive us. He hears and receives our confession. He hears our humble cries, and he will not turn a deaf ear to broken and contrite hearts. That's a good word. When you're broken before the Lord, he hears you. And when, when we turn our hearts to God and cry out to him, he is able to deliver us from the troubles of this world, from the destruction of our sin, from the attacks even of the enemy. And so I think what's happening here is that there's a call that we should dedicate our life, no matter what's happening, and particularly in our prayer life, to pursuing God. So the words here that Jehoshaphat uses in, in verses 8 or 9 are not original to him. In fact, he's picking up some words that were spoken a long time before, but were spoken in the same spot that he's now standing. So these words that Jehoshaphat is using, this dedication of no matter what comes, famine, pestilence, whatever, those words were first spoken by King Solomon when the, when the temple was built and it was dedicated. And I just want to read what Solomon said. You'll hear this similar language. Solomon said, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew 
or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that you may that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave our fathers. Then he says later uh, in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, he says, if they sin against you, and I love this, and then he puts in a, 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 a parenthetical word, for there is no one who does not sin. In other words, it's going to happen. So when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh God, let your ears be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. So Jehoshaphat isn't making up this dedication. He's just really building on the words that Solomon had already spoken. In other words, let your prayer be a dedication and a reaffirmation of your faith in the goodness of God and his ability to forgive and deliver. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God hears your prayer? Do you believe that God can and will forgive and save you? Let your life be a dedication to that faith that God hear and God will save. Now, in verse 10 and 11 and 12, we finally get down to what he's actually asking for. So look with me in your Bibles. In verse 10, he says, And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of whose possession? Your possession which you have given us to inherit it. Inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes, our eyes are on you. Just a few things here. When Jehoshaphat got down to making his request, his plea for help, the first thing he does is he prays according to God's will. The last thing that Jehoshaphat prays for is the specific need that has brought him and the people to their knees. And if you read verses 12, excuse me, verses 10, 11, and 12 closely, you'll, you'll not find a specific request other than that God would, would execute judgment. So he doesn't say, God, would you turn them around? Would you give them all a disease? Would you make them all go blind? Would you, would you kill all their horses? No specific thing like that. It just, he, he's, he's a little bit vague in the specific things he wants other than God's uh, judgment or, or executing judgment there. Because Jehoshaphat understands that God acts perfectly according to his will. And so instead of praying specifically for what he wants done to his enemies, he prays, God, would your will be done? You see, when we pray according to the will of God, we can be assured that God will answer our plea. God is always acting according to his will. Verse 10 references the people who were attacking Judah. Now, again, I don't have time for the history. In fact, 
when you read the passage, you, you get that there's something going on here. There's some underlying issues. He said, these are the people you wouldn't let us attack when we came into the land. I don't have time for all that. It's a, it's a long, complicated history, but shorthand here is these people are descendants of um, Esau, and some of them are descendants of Lot. And out of God's grace, he had provided for them some place to dwell and to live. But Jehoshaphat knew that God had given his people this land and had promised to keep them in this land. And anyone acting against that wasn't acting necessarily against Jehoshaphat. They were acting against the will of the living God. And so he prays for deliverance not for the preservation of his reign or his kingdom. He prays for deliverance not for the, for the safety of the people specifically, but rather he prays for deliverance, that, 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 that understanding that these attackers are attacking the act and the will and the purpose of God. So he's praying, God, let your will be done here, that we would be preserved in the land. And we make request of God let your request be pleased that God's will would be advanced, that his kingdom would be advanced, that his faithfulness to his promises would be known. And when you do, seek deliverance in the Lord alone. So second to, second to the last verse of verse 12 is a declaration of total dependence on the Lord. Look at it with me in verse 12. Jehoshaphat says, we are powerless. I got nothing, God. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Friends, we cannot plead for God's help while we're hoping for help in another source. Do you hear me? You cannot authentically plead for God's help, help while you think help's really going to come by another way. We cannot plead for God's help while looking to another for deliverance. The right posture and the right prayer is to seek deliverance in the Lord alone. We are powerless. God, you're our only hope. But notice too, there's a sense of peace here that is found in giving his attention to God alone. In the very last verse, in the last sentence of verse 12, is a recognition of weakness while finding peace in God. So look what he says there in the last part. He says, well, we do not know what to do. We're powerless the army is, that is coming is big and mighty. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Friends, peace is not found in man's knowledge, man's strength, man's ability, man's strategy. Peace is found in the presence of God alone. Paul said it this way in the New Testament. He said, do not be anxious about anything. Anybody anxious today? Paul said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul connects the peace of God with praying to God. Instead of looking to the things of this world for help, Paul says, be anxious about nothing, but by prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God. Is that not what Jehoshaphat is doing here? We don't know what to do. That's anxiety language, right? I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
Now, I do want to be practical this morning, and I do want to give you just some practical suggestions of wherever you are in your walk with the Lord of how you can begin to have an authentic prayer life. And they're just four. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to give them to you quickly. Number one, start wherever you are and start today. So there's a lot you can learn about how to pray, but there is nothing you must learn to start to pray. Do you hear me? I want you to be deep prayers. I want you to walk faithfully in prayer. I want you to study God's word about prayer. But you don't have to learn anything to start praying. You hear me? So start wherever you are and start today. As you mature in faith, God will mature your prayer life. Secondly, don't be ashamed to approach God's throne. No matter how long you have been away um, or what brings you back, don't be ashamed to approach God's throne. Sometimes the lie of Satan is this, and this whispers in your ear. You want to come back to God. You want to get on your knees this afternoon, but Satan will whisper in your ear, how dare you? You hadn't been on your knees in years. You hadn't been concerned about prayer in forever. Why would God listen to you now? Now, friends, that, that word of shame does not come from the living God. We know that God rejoices in contrite hearts, He receives those who are humble and asking for forgiveness. So don't let whatever has kept you or however long you've been away uh, to shame you from approaching God's throne. God rejoices when the wayward return and when the lost are found. Number three, be consistent and see God work. Now, I want to tell you something. I've been walking with the Lord many years now, and this is something I'm just now really getting a grasp to understand It is in the consistency that you have the ability to see how God has been and continues to work. There are some things that I pray for every single day. Some of those things are things that, to be honest, I'm not real sure I'll ever see in my life. Did not, in some of them, I don't have hope that I'll see them come to fruition in my lifetime. And yet, because I pray consistently for them every single day, it surprises me when one of those days, God has answered that in a beautiful way. It humbles me. But in that consistency of praying for something every single day, I'm able to see God work working and moving, and it's been a beautiful, beautiful thing for me. So pray consistently and see God work, and connected to that, wait on God to work. God acts according to his perfect uh, goodness and his perfect timing, not not um, not your impatience. Now, when I pray, I want it to happen five minutes ago. Amen? God, I'm in trouble. Fix it right now. God, there's a need that I see. Deal with it right now. But God is always working, not according to your will, but his will. Not your time, but his time. So um, wait on the Lord to work. Pray diligently and consistently and pray patiently, trusting God to work. Authentic prayer. There's a story about D.L. Moody. If you don't know who D.L. Moody was, he was an evangelist, an amazing evangelist that God used in an amazing way in a previous generation. And uh, D.L. Moody, uh, there's a story told about him that um, he had gone into a saloon, into a bar, and he asked the the owner of the saloon if uh, his son could come to a Sunday school class that that Moody was was teaching. The man that owned the saloon was an atheist, uh, drunkard, and belligerent and ran Moody out of the saloon. Undeterred, he went back multiple times and 
to make a, a long story short, what he eventually decided to do was he, he began to read up on some of the political leanings of the, of the bar owner so that he could talk politics with him and eventually asked him, uh, the, the bar owner said, I'll tell you what, if you want to have church for my boy, won't you have it here in the saloon? Well, that was a bit of an uncomfortable thing for, for Moody, but he agreed to it. But then the bar owner said, but here's the deal. We're going to preach for 50, 45 minutes and you can preach for 15 minutes. So Moody would show up and the, the bar owner and his patrons would talk politics and whatever mess they wanted to talk about for 45 minutes. And then they'd give Moody 15 minutes to, to preach and try to convince them of the truth of the gospel. Now, this seems unfair and, and lopsided of which it was. But in preparing for that, Moody asked one of the young boys in his Sunday school to accompany him. And he said, you know, he wasn't a big guy. He wasn't necessarily a well-spoken kid. But, but he said, I, I just felt like he was a young man who was true, was authentic. And they went and they went to this saloon and it was abusive. The 45 minutes of, of preaching from the other uh, um, folks there were, was abusive and it was hostile. It was wicked is what Moody says. And when it got time for his time to preach, he asked the boy, and we don't know how old the kid was. That's not recorded in the biography I was reading, but I'm guessing um, school-aged. He asked the boy, would you pray? And the boy prayed. Well, there's no record of what he said or what he prayed for, but the only record we have is that when he got done, the, the hard, calloused, wicked, atheistic bar owner was so moved by what the boy prayed that he said, if that's what you're teaching, those kids down at the Sunday school, you can have my son. Now, I think what happened there was not necessarily eloquent words, but it was authentic prayer. That that old hard, wicked man understood that what he was hearing was a boy who knew the Lord, was crying out before the living God, and was authentically praying. Friends, that's what I want to encourage you to today. I'm not talking about eloquence. I'm not talking about perfect theology, if you're worried about that. I'm talking about authentic prayer. The people of God turning their faces to God and crying out to God. When we authentically pray before God, He hears us. Praise God for that. He hears us, and we behold His power and His glory, and His will is accomplished through us. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.